Liz Mercy begins on Okay, this morning's passage, Romans 12. We will begin with prayer, and then we'll open. Lord, thank you for everyone here. I thank you for the many people that come and serve Community Bible Church here, that you've called to be here and to advance your kingdom by serving and loving one another, by growing in the truth, by learning to grow in the word and to what it means to follow Jesus, just as your 12 disciples you chose, upon whom we are founded. We are people that believe in your word and that we are to work and to be founded upon your word and your word alone with final authority that we walk and live this life. Thank you for the grace that you've shown to us. We thank you that we get to study this letter together now, Romans, by your Apostle Paul. Help us to grow in its truths, to think deeply about these passages and to apply them to our lives. For your glory and for your honor. Amen. Okay, so Romans 12. Last week I did not record last week's class. That was an accident. A lot of you weren't here last week, or a number of you. Last week I began to talk about contending for the faith. We went to Jude, we went to Second John. We were doing a two-part, two-week series kind of on... It's kind of stepping out of Romans, but balancing and understanding how Romans 12, all these practical commands of how to do church together, uh, we kind of balance that out theologically by addressing some of the other areas in Scripture that some might think are, well, is that contradictory? The answer is no, it's both of these things at the same time. And so we talked about how there will be false Christians and false teachers in the church. And Jude actually says that, that they creep in unnoticed. And so that's a reality of church. And so we were ta- addressing that reality is that we still have to remain vigilant in the truth and vigilant with one another's discipleship relationships. And then that landed on my discussion about church discipline. For the believers in the church and for the unbelievers or false teachers that have crept into the church. Church discipline is for everyone in those cases. And I didn't get to talk about every single detail I didn't want to go down every single detail. I just wanted to do a broad subject matter touch. Okay? But I want to say this. My views on church discipline does not mean that is the elders' views on church discipline. Okay? Or the pastors. It is an area which the men can be different and distinct and have slight distinctions of interpretation and application. Okay? So... I hope that that helps and helps just clarify some of those things. I do believe my views are biblical. (laughs) I can strongly point to you in passages in Scripture where God killed people. That doesn't mean that's what we do. Um, But we disfellowship. And some men may or may not believe in the last step of church discipline talked about in Scripture by Paul and Matthew, and that is disfellowship. And... That can be for an unbeliever or an unbeliever who's creeping into the church that's professing doctrine and saying they're going to live a life but have strayed from holiness and need that final step if they are unwilling to repent and change with a certain attitude, idea, or uh, a type of living or practice in their life. 
So now we'll get on with Romans 12, 14 through 17. Paul says this, <clears throat> Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Okay, so the first we're going to do is look at what does it mean to bless those who persecute you to bless and not curse it's almost word for word Paul quoting Jesus here in Matthew I want you to understand Romans was written before Matthew was written which is an important thing <laughs> okay Paul directly quotes something that Matthew is going to write before he pens Matthew. Okay, so the oral tradition and the apostles' teaching, this is something Paul was already teaching uh, that came out of the, the words of Jesus. And if you look to Matthew 5, turn with me there. Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48. This is what Matthew records Jesus saying. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he, okay, this is important. Jesus, just like Chance was talking about the therefore, this is the therefore right now. Why should we do it that way? He gives an explanation now. He points to God. That's why theology does matter. Jesus used the same thing, okay? Why should we bless our enemies why should we bless them when when they persecute us for he god causes his son to rise on the evil and the good he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous okay this is an attribute of god and jesus points to the reality of god's common grace god's benevolence god's kindness toward all mankind who are in all kinds of sin God feeds them. God clothes them. God provides ways for them to be receive shelter. In Acts, Paul says, God fills their heart with food and gladness. Okay, not these are God's enemies, and God chooses to fill their hearts with food and gladness. God is still kind toward all mankind. And he's not left himself without witness. He does these things, causing the sun to rise, causing the rains to come. And beyond that, I believe what Paul asserts in Acts with that statement, filling their hearts with gladness, is, blows my mind. Not only does God provide physical sustenance for people, he provides an emotional thing that brings joy. He fills their hearts with joy and gladness. And they don't deserve that. They deserve mm -hmm. hell. 
we all deserve hell. And in God's kindness, even when we don't know him and are rejecting him and are totally blind to him and are prisoners of Satan, God is filling our, our, our heart and our life with many good things. And we don't give him thanks as we should. That's what's going on in the world all around outside right now, is that God is caring for people. As you can see, the sun is shining right now. And people are enjoying life right now. And that comes from God. Even the unbelievers that aren't with us right now in Pierre and wherever else. Many people are enjoying benefits of God's grace right now. And this is what Jesus says in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that. If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so a part of one of God's attributes, a part of one of God's perfections is, is while everyone is God's enemy and has been at one certain amount of time, God is still benevolently kind to his enemies. And Jesus is pointing that out for us in that passage. And so if we are to take upon the image of God and imitate him to a lost and dying mm -hmm. world, one of the things that's going to come off of us Christians is to still have love and kindness like God to the enemy and the unbeliever. This is what God does for us. Jesus points it out, how God shows his attribute off, this perfection of God. We are to be striving for that perfection of God as well, even to enemies who persecute us. It's a difficult task, right? It's a difficult task. But those who are of the king and his kingdom have different rules, different thoughts, and different ideas about life. Our king, as we've seen, provides food for all of mankind in all kinds of sin. Jesus displays God as a benevolent king, an almighty sovereign that provides the basics of life and even emotional gladness to people that are his enemies. And so, this is what I say. Even if our enemy was beaten, okay, do you guys have an enemy? Do you guys have an enemy? Yes. Does anybody have an enemy that has been really mean to you? It could be somebody who's mean at work. Um, a family member that has been extremely overbearing. I'm sure you've had somebody in your life that has caused you great sorrow or anguish. Anyway, picture that in your mind. Okay, that person. Even if this person was beaten and vengeance was administered by some means, would you take that person a drink of cool water and bread and let them know that you care for them and are praying for their salvation? You tell me. You think about it. Now, if we look to Jesus on the cross, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you read those parallel passages about Jesus on the cross, the two thieves that were crucified with him, the two insurrectionists, the two rebels that were being crucified with Jesus, according to, if you read all three accounts, both were hurling insults at Jesus for a time on the cross. Both. Okay, both were making fun of Jesus, and then something changed in one of them. 
What did Jesus do for that man? Okay, this is an immediate application of this text. Okay? What did Jesus do for the man that was just moments before, while you're in great physical pain, the greatest physical pain you could possibly imagine, with nails through your bones, your lungs are collapsing from the weight of your weight and gravity, and you're trying to hold yourself up to get another breath of air, and then you have to sag back down on the cross. What does Jesus do for this man who was just poking fun at him moments before? He forgives him and grants him salvation and gives him the greatest promise anyone could possibly hear, and that's this, you'll be with me in paradise today. So it's not too far if you do have somebody that's making fun of you to extend them kindness, to extend them grace, to actually do something positive to them. Don't simply try not to make fun of them back. Actually try to bless. And Paul's going to get there at the end of our passage in verse uh, 21. He'll eventually say, don't, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the final statements in this passage that we're working through is you don't overcome evil by being evil back or by harboring negative feelings or attitudes. That's not going to change the world. The way of the king and the way of the kingdom and the way of the kingdom citizens, which is you who believe, is to do good to those who are offensive to you and have hurt you and are beating you and are making fun of you. Do something good. Do something good for them. Now, a balance is this. This kind of balances this out, though. This is not to say that the person who is your enemy cannot be punished by law courts or by the collective church in the case of church discipline. <clears throat> or by elders in a church, and it is also God's will for that to happen. God has given us law, and those who offend the law will be punished. That's also coming up next in Romans, as Paul's going to talk about government. I pray that all you patriots to America will be here for that. But anyway, talking about government and the government's right to punish people is actually coming next. So this doesn't contradict that. It parallels and talks about it with distinctions, okay? The thing that you need to recognize about government is you as an individual aren't the government. You as an individual aren't the collective body of elders at a church who have the authority to make a final decision on how to punish somebody. So revenge isn't at the individual level or punishment or discipline. It's at a collective level of people who are put in that authority. You don't have the right to take that authority. What Jesus commands of you as individuals is to be kind, to be benevolent, and be like God in this matter. That doesn't mean that there isn't a balance, and that somebody who is totally misbehaving may not have some type of discipline or punishment coming to them by the proper means, which would be government or the collective church or elders. Church discipline, however, is separate and distinct from the role of local, state, or national authorities, governments. The worst that a church is to do to a person is to confront the sinner, 
tell them to stop, and lastly, remove them from the assembly if they are unrepentant and unchanged about their sin. This causes them shame and sorrow and a desire to rectify their wrong if the Lord works in their heart. This may potentially save their soul if they are unsaved or cause them to know the gospel living requirements and the church will not have evil deeds permeating or influencing its members, especially the young, the weak, or the doubting, the immature amongst us. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5. The Lord loves his children enough to discipline them, and so should we. Hebrews 12. Okay, God promises discipline will yield, in Hebrews 12, the peaceful fruit of righteousness for believers. One of the reasons why I believe in church discipline is, if we don't do it, how are they ever going to yield peaceful fruit of righteousness if it ever happens? Going through that process is meant and is promised by God to yield the peaceful fruit of a changed life and righteousness becoming more in that person's life. I talked about some of those other examples. The Lord, the Spirit, killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to him and to Peter in the church about how much a tract of land was worth. doesn't seem that grievous to us. But just as when God gave Moses the law, with the coming of an administration, with the coming of the administration of Israel as a nation, we saw signs, miracles, and wonders that happened at the hands of Moses. And then with the administration of the law, and then the people got the law, and then there was death and plague and stonings and discipline for those who would break God's law. And so... Luke picks up on this theme as the author in Acts, just like Jesus taught in the Gospels what the church would be like, is when he established his new administration, the church on the earth, there were signs, there were wonders, there were amazing things happening at the hands of his men that were like Moses, his apostles. And then with the coming of church law and the coming of church organization, there was church discipline that happened, the first being done by the Spirit. And then Paul repeats that in other letters of people that were in various forms of sin that were to be cast out of the church and dealt with in varying ways. So similar parallel ideas. Nothing's really new. It happened in the Old Testament that way. Luke picks up on that and shows how it happens in the New Testament that way. Nothing's changed. The ideas are parallel. This event early on in Acts set the tone of the apostolic church establishment. God's new administration under the apostles had discipline for sin as part of the church age. God's church under apostolic teaching similarly had dealings with sinful members just as Israel had commands and laws to follow with sinning members. Remember the story of Achan. Okay, so Achan received death. Ananias and Sapphira received death. And then there was lesser forms of discipline you can see in the Old Testament. When Miriam rebels against Moses, her brother, and tries to take over as a leader, something happens to her. She is strucken with leprosy. God calls her, Aaron, and Miriam to the assembly in the front of the tent. God's cloud comes down. And he says, why have you challenged my servant Moses? And then Aaron and Miriam are like, uh-oh. 
And then God's cloud goes up, and then they look at one another, the three of them, and Miriam's struck with leprosy all over her skin. And she has to go live outside of the camp of Israel for a week or so. And for Moses to pray for her to be healed, and then she's allowed back in. That's actually what we see with church disfellowship, the same kind of thing. You have to go outside for a while, prove repentance, and then come back in. Same thing in the church. Same thing. Most churches don't do this because it's painful, but I believe it yields the fruit of righteousness. We aren't given another count of Miriam speaking out against Moses again. It produced the fruit of righteousness in her life. That was one area of sin she was afraid of from then on. It was a positive thing, as painful as it is to go through separation and imagine doing that to somebody or them having to go outside. Surely this can't be God's way, but it is God's way. And what did what happened? Miriam was submissive and served Moses the rest of their days there. We don't hear of another account of her usurping or murmuring. It yielded righteousness in her life. And that's God's method and God's ways. We ought not to try to get in the way and tell God he doesn't know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. We ought to be a part and obey mm -hmm. and do things God's way. <clears throat> God disciplines those he loves. And so that's the theological balance of blessing those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That verse does not mean we never do church discipline. And that it does not mean that we can't take somebody to court because it's that grievous and that serious, or we can't come before the elders for help. Okay? Lastly, in Matthew 18, Jesus tells us to correct our brother in private, then with the second or third person, then the whole church. Lastly, excommunicate the person if he won't listen to the church and the elders. This last step of excommunication... I don't want to go into details about this. I'm trying to exegete this part of the passage, but I don't want to cover that now. Okay, so you can, and, and this doesn't mean that you can't mourn, okay? While you're supposed to bless, kind of sounds positive, it doesn't mean that you can't mourn or feel the weight of being offended either, okay? The Bible is plenty numerous with scriptures about having sorrow and pain over somebody sinning against you. It, so... You're not wrong if you feel the weight of somebody hurting your feeling and your heart feels like it's going to explode because it's so hurtful, okay? You're not feeling something wrong. I just want to encourage you that as well, the theological balance. You can mourn when somebody hurts you, and you can cry out to God for strength and help, and you can ask God to discipline that person. David did when people sinned against him, okay? You can still try to bless them, and then yet at the same time, you can ask God to take care of this person and discipline them. But once again, you're not the individual taking the revenge. You're leaving room for the justice of God through the means that God has provided for that to happen. Okay? David cries out to God about his enemies in the Psalms. But at the same time, the Psalms repeat the theme of trusting and waiting upon the Lord. Okay? An example of that was David had, David was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. 
while Saul was the king? Did David take matters into his own hands to make himself king and put himself on the throne by slaying Paul? Even though he had many opportunities standing next to Saul, and Saul was chasing him and trying to kill him, did David take matters into his own hand? Even when Saul was trying to kill him, he did not. He didn't take matters into his own hands. And God gives him a really good example of God's sovereignty is that one time when Saul comes to try to kill David with three other messengers before him, and I've talked about this before, is that David actually witnessed, as these guys were set in their mind to come kill David, the spirit possessed them, and they fell down and started prophesying. David saw the sovereignty of God that nothing can happen to me until God allows it to happen. The Spirit of God is capable of interceding for anything at any time, stopping any sin from happening that He doesn't want to happen in your life. And He is also permissible for God to allow anything to happen to you that He wants to happen to you at any time in life. God can... There's a story about that with Abraham and Pharaoh and Sarah. And uh, when Sarah was going to be a concubine in Pharaoh's harem early on in Genesis 19 or 20. God stopped Pharaoh from sleeping with her. He actually made it impossible for him to do that. And then later on in David's life, God allowed David to sin. God is sovereign. Wait upon the Lord. Pray, cry out to God. Do kindness, bless those. Do something positive to your enemies. To those who would harm you or insult you, be quick to forgive. Be quick to forgive. Okay, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The Christian family, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep with those who weep. Okay? How is that possible if you have somebody rejoicing and weeping in your church assembly at the same time? You have one people that are celebrating something and you have other people that are mourning over a death or something extreme in their life. How is it possible to have both at the same time? It is. It is. You can have empathy toward both people in two diff gravely different circumstances. This is the same as how God can be love and God can hate and have wrath at the same time on an individual. The same with you, like we did covered. You can positively pray for somebody and be crying out to God to please deal with this swiftly toward the same person at the same time. The parallel ideas. Can I, can I ask a question back to David real quick? Yes. Um, so, so David was not in the church apparently at the time when he went and chose to sin. Is that correct? Or with Bathsheba and all that? And then was he, he must not have been in fellowship with the church because he continued on in sin. I don't know if I understand your question. So as, as church discipline goes, um, so if, if, if David was in fellowship with church with this continued sin, with the, sending the husband out to uh, die, basically, kind of what he did, um, would he not, was he not in fellowship at that time with the church? He was. Nobody disciplined him at the time. It was national Israel. Slight distinction. Yeah. Uh, David actually wasn't stoned to death, even though that was lawful to have happened to him. But he Nathan does. the prophet did come and rebuke him after the fact. 
And then God did discipline David the rest of his life. The rest of his life was sorrow of seeing his kingdom be, uh, be a tumult the rest of his life. The other thing is David did not keep sitting or keep finding other women to sleep with. And he wrote Psalm 51, and he said his bones, he felt like his bones were broken within him from the weight, the emotional weight of what he'd done after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And so I'm telling you, it's healthy for you to feel broken from somebody rebuking you to your face about your sin. Other people in the Bible have lived through that too. It's a good thing. It yields righteousness. I'm telling you. Walk through it. It's good. Thank you. That helps. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. The Christian family is to be sensitive to those around us and care for those around us. It's a virtue to be sensitive, wise, and perceptive as a Christian. And it's also a virtue in Christianity to pursue balance and unity. Paul says to have joy with your brothers who are joyously rejoicing, and at the same time, you can beware of those elsewhere who are suffering, and you can mourn with them and sympathize with them. Like God, we can be sorrowful and joyful at the same time. We can feel love and anger at the same time. <clears throat> when we are with brothers in pain, suffering, or mourning, we can mourn with them and for them. And we share one another's burdens, as is elsewhere shared in Scripture. And we can share one another's joys and honors as well. We are a church family. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. It doesn't say when somebody else is honored and praised to be jealous of that individual and wish that the limelight was on you at that moment. That's the tendency though, right? Who's this person that's being honored? Come on, don't people see my work? Don't people see what I'm doing? That's wrong. When one member is honored by all, you should be happy for that person. And that's actually a good deed that will be rewarded to you in heaven for having that right attitude. You will not be rewarded for the other. And this is actually the way it will be in heaven as well. Corinthians 12, 26. Some people will be more highly honored in heaven. And in a utopic society, you won't ever have a negative attitude toward that person that is actually above you in status. You will always be glad for God's work in their life and for their work for the Lord. You will never envy them. You will only rejoice for them and be happy to see what God did in them and with them and what they did with the graces God provided in their life. Verse 16, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Read back Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I, the Apostle Paul, say this to everyone among you, Romans, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God is the one who has allotted to each of us a measure of faith. 
Wow. So that's kind of the context, I believe, for Paul drawing on this again. And as Pastor Chance has been preaching on Christ's humility in Philippians 2, I want you to frequent verses 1 through 5 often. Because Christ wasn't about himself or his own glory or his own honor. He wasn't worried about everyone knowing he was God while he was on earth either. He was concerned about serving people and saving people and showing people how to live a right life. And he wasn't worried about prestige or being recognized first. Because often the disciples failed to see him as he was and for who he was. So what is Paul getting at here? I believe it's a key word would be solidarity. We're not to be haughty in mind. We're to associate with the lowly and we're to have the same mind toward one another. One of that same-mindedness comes with being united in Scripture. Listen to what the dictionary calls solidarity. Union or fellowship arising from common responsibilities and interests. Do Christians have common responsibilities and interests? Well, they should. It's right here. It's the Bible. And it's obeying the Bible. That's our common interest and our common responsibility. Yes? I pray it's that way with you and is growing. We as Christians are called to associate with all classes and races of people and to be united in the grace, love, and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus and the Holy Spirit have inspired the Old and New Testament books for us to know and walk in together. That is our common interest, and that is our common responsibility amongst all. Our unity together is found in truth, not our skin color. Our personal hobbies are our interests. So if you're a hunter, is that preeminently important versus somebody who is not a hunter who is a Christian? What is your loyalty and your duty and your responsibility and your highest interest together too? Is it to the king and the kingdom? Or is it to your worldly affiliations and hobbies? What is your highest interest and responsibility in your mind? Is the Bible your highest hobby? Is it what you spend the most time and money and emotion and passion pursuing? Is it the church? Is it the king? Is it the kingdom? Associate with all Christians. You have the Bible in common. All other affiliations, leagues, unions, nations that we are part of are secondary as compared to the kingdom. I pray that you'll develop that mind. We are to associate with and love Christians chiefly because they are of Christ and are striving to uphold the book. God and his word unite people like no other thing can, and at the same time it is also what can divide people. The rich and the poor have this in common. Never pay back evil for evil. I don't know if we're going to get to. We've got one minute. But Jesus says this. The second half of Jesus' great commandment is directed to your fellow man. So love God and love your fellow man. When Jesus was questioned by a man about the summary of the law, 
the summary of God's commands for us to follow, Jesus said that it was love. The love of God, second, the love of man. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, it's the same. Four are addressed to God, and the rest are addressed to man, toward your fellow man. This is what Paul says about love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, but love does kindness. And this is summarizing everything we've kind of looked at here. Love does no wrong, love does kindness, even when suffering wrongly. Love is not easily provoked. Love is patient. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own interests. Yeah, Paul is saying to have a mind toward others. Love doesn't seek its own interests elsewhere in Scripture. It seeks the interests of others, the welfare of others. Love shows kindness and goodness to others, even one's enemies. Love forgives. Love seeks to heal, restore, and reconcile. God is good and God is love, and so must we be. He sends rain on the just and the unjust, and he fills men's heart with food and gladness. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for time together. I pray that we will look in detail to these truths and applying them to our lives and that we will look at the words and look at all of your scripture and that we would become more like you and that we would become better balanced in our understanding and that we would strive for discernment and wisdom and having all scripture on our mind at all times so that we may act in a way that looks more like you. Amen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.